Ephesians chapter 1, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles there. This morning we are continuing our study through the book of Ephesians, and we're, we finished sort of a series of studies last week. We're beginning a different series of studies today. Last week we finished a series of studies looking at things that we learn from Paul's praise to God. We're beginning now a series of studies where we're going to be learning from Paul's prayer for the saints in Ephesians 1 verses 15 through 23. Going from one long run-on sentence in the Greek, verses 3 through 13, to now another long run-on sentence in the Greek in verses 15 through 23. It's almost like Paul was just like, I'm going to praise God. And he just like unloads all of these amazing things in praise. And then he kind of just transitions to going, let me tell you what now I'm praying for, for you and thanking God for for you in verses 15 through 23. And in part one today, we're going to be focusing in on verses 15 through 18, but we're going to read that section of verses up front. And so verse 15, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Paul spent a large chunk of the beginning of this letter to the church in Ephesus, again, praising God for his Trinitarian involvement and blessing us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ, listing then some of those blessings we received from our God in his declaration of praise, but now Paul is switching gears from his primary focus on the Lord, where he was praising the Lord, to now letting the believers in Ephesus know that he thanked God for them, that he had been and he was continuing to pray for them, and then letting them know some of the details of what he was praying for as He prayed for them, things that we could say are are for every believer, are for us today. And I want to show you a quote from Warren Wearsby to sort of help, again, set the stage for this introduction into these verses that we're going to be looking at. He said, we discovered that we were born rich when we trusted Christ, but this is not enough for we must grow in our understanding of our riches if we are ever going to use them to the glory of God. Paul desired the Ephesian Christians to understand what great wealth they had in Christ. Paul knew of their faith and love, and in this he rejoiced. The Christian life has two dimensions, faith toward God and love toward men, and you cannot separate the two. But Paul knew that faith and love were just the beginning. The Ephesians needed to know much more. This is why he prayed for them and for us. And so with that in mind, look again with me in verses 15 and 16. Therefore, verse 15, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. You know, after Paul's introduction and greeting in verses 1 and 2, 
he then broke forth in that amazing sort of, as some scholars have called it, sort of a, a hymn of praise in verses 3 through 14, which was really directed towards the Lord, but with other believers in mind, which is clear in his reference to us and we and you. But he's really not speaking to the Ephesian believers. He's addressing it to the Lord. He's praising the Lord in those verses. And now in verse 15, after making his way through that time of directing his attention to the Lord, he now directs his attention back to addressing the believers he was writing to. And he goes, again, from one long run-on sentence to another. And in directing his attention back to the Ephesian believers, he now wants them to know what he heard about them and what he had been praying for them. And this is actually one of two places in this letter here and in chapter 3 where we see Paul uh, writing down what his prayer was for believers. And I just wonder, you know, if Paul was writing today, Every once in a while, I'll see a meme about something. If, you know, if a letter was being written to the church today, what would it say? What would be the things that would be included in it? Well, I'm thankful that the things written 2,000 years ago are still relevant and applicable today. It still addresses the issues of the heart, still addresses of our human condition, the things of eternity. But Paul says, I, I heard this, and I just wonder for us, if, if Paul, if he lived today, would hear the same things about you and me, I would hope that that would be true. That the things that would sort of make it to the, re- the report that would make it to somebody else would be, man, faith toward God and love toward all the saints. And I don't know. We, we have in our day such a strong emphasis on like leaving a legacy being remembered and you know what are we gonna what are we gonna we're, we're, how are we gonna leave our mark and you wonder about the things that that other people might come to know about us what they might take away from time with us and I just in seeing sort of what Paul writes as he says I, I heard something about you that we would take that to heart even today. Just kind of right off the bat and go, Lord, I don't know what other people, maybe we would have an honest sort of evaluation of our own lives if we kind of considered what other people would take away as they spend time with us, as they were around us, as they heard our words, as they saw our actions, as they saw our lives, that God, this would also be true of me. Faith in you and love for all the saints. In verse 16, Paul says that he did not cease to give thanks for them, making mention of them in his prayers. And it's clear throughout all of Paul's writings in the New Testament that people were always on the mind and heart of Paul. And that constant thinking about others turned into prayerfulness and thankfulness for those people that God put on his mind. And this is such a great example, continues to be such a great example for you and for me. We are called in Scripture to pray without ceasing. And many of us, if we read that and we have read that or we hear that even now, it just does not seem to compute. Like, how do I do that? Like, do you interrupt every conversation and you just, you're praying? Do you, you know, are you able to not work? Like, are you not able to feed your kids? Like, are, are you, like, because we're just praying without ceasing. Like, this isn't something that is, is not possible. There's this inward sort of communion, inward communication that God is going, I want you to always be seeking me, praying and listening. and Because prayer is not just us blabbering on to God incessantly. 
we can do pretty well at that. Here's God and this and this and this and I need this and I want this and this is going on. It's like, and that's, that there's, that's good. God wants to hear from us and we should be going to him. But there's this aspect of prayer where it's, it's two-sided. And God actually wants to speak to us. He wants access to our mind, our hearts, our thoughts, our will, the things that are going on in our day and in our lives. And, and so, but, but having that sort of openness that we're thinking about the Lord, not necessarily directing all of our words to God, inwardly even, or outwardly, verbally, but that we're going, God, I'm open to you. I want to hear you. I want to be led by you. I want a greater sensitivity to you. And just to be able to like stay in that sort of zone, if you will. And Paul did that. I, I try to make this sort of a practice. I don't do really well at all the time, but when somebody tells me something that's going on in, in their life or something that clearly needs prayer, I try to, and I try to be better at like actually stopping and praying right then. Because it's so much, it, it's so much uh, it, it can be so easy to go, yeah, I'll pray for you, and then, man, all this other stuff's happening, and you totally, it, it goes out of your mind. And you never do it. And I just see that sort of with the Apostle Paul. He heard something, he's hearing something, and immediately he's seeking the Lord about that. He's hearing this report about the Ephesian believers. And he just, God, bless them. Thank you for them. Work in their lives, God. He's just, and he's always got people on his mind that translated both into thanksgiving and into intercession. Paul had this report come back to him. He's thinking about them. He's praying for them. And it began when he heard this report, as we see in verse 15. He heard about their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for all the saints. Now, for me, at least, when I read this, it seems that after Paul moved on from his three years of ministry in the city of Ephesus, that somewhere along the way, maybe early on, Paul gets this report. Someone brings something to Paul, like, hey, I had been in Ephesus. Let me just tell you what I saw. These people have faith in Jesus. They trust Jesus. They're depending upon Jesus still. And you know what? They, they love people. And not just some of the saints. Isn't that easy for us? Some of, what if, and he heard, and they loved some of the saints. They loved you, Paul. Other people, not so much. <laughs> it would be a completely different report, right? Maybe he would, there'd be a little bit of correction back in his writing. All the saints. I think we forget sometimes. And you know, we don't, we don't click with everybody. There are some people it's really hard to love who are genuinely disciples of Jesus. Here's the, the part that you and I maybe need to remember a little bit more. I need to remember a little bit more. We are going to be together in heaven for all eternity. And here's the great part. All the sinful things that rub each other wrongs all going to be gone. So <laughs> all the stuff that relationally, like if we thought I'm going to have to be with that person for all eternity, but I'm still me with all my fleshliness and sinful, and they're still them with all that, it, we'd be like, ah, Lord, this is going to be really hard. <laughs> We're going to be fully redeemed, fully perfected. And enjoy that sweetness of fellowship. But just to get now, God, I want to love people well. I want to love people well. They had love for one another. What was that from? Well, Jesus said in John 15, 12, right? The night before he was going to go to the cross, he told his disciples in John 15, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. 
So these people had put their trust in Jesus. They had put their confidence in Jesus. Confidence in Jesus. They were relying upon Jesus. And the outflow of their trust in Jesus was that they were then loving all the saints. And this should be the natural, sort of supernatural byproduct of us putting our faith in Jesus, that we then have agape love for all the saints, all of Jesus's people, and even beyond, not just those who belong to Jesus, but even those who uh, don't want anything to do with Jesus. These Ephesian believers were staying rooted in Jesus, and so were being fruitful for Jesus, the fruit of his Agape love was being produced in their lives, and this led Paul to unceasingly give thanks to God for them. Now, in the following verses through the end of the chapter, we're going to see some of the details of what Paul prayed. So, continue on into verse 17. He writes, That... The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. So here Paul gives some insight into what he was praying for for them. And we could also say that these prayers are for us and are prayers you and I can and should pray for other saints too. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of our understanding being enlightened. You know, at the heart of this, Paul is praying to the Father to help these believers. We need the same help to really be able to know and understand and experience the Lord. And understand, Paul prayed these things because the Father desired to do these things, the Father himself wanting us to know and understand and experience him. Because what what would it look like for us? Let's say you had a friend female friend, and she tells you, well, I met a guy, seems pretty great, he's given me a lot of things, given me a lot of great things, in fact, he gave me this crazy expensive engagement ring, and he's gotten me a house, he bought me a house, taking care of me in the future, he's like said it all, he's paved it all, I never have to work again. You're like, well, what's he like? I'd, I don't really know. He just gives me a bunch of things, but I don't really know him. He doesn't tell me anything about himself. We'd be like, that's really weird. <laughs> that's a really unhealthy relationship. Sounds more like a sugar daddy than anything else. Like, something's wrong here. You imagine if, like, We read the first chunk of scripture and we're going, man, God's blessed us with every spiritual blessing, but I don't know anything about him. He's given me all this great stuff. He's made me all these promises, but I don't know him and I can't really know him. He always seems at arm's length. Everything sort of seems dim about what he's like. He seems relationally cold. He seems relationally distant. We'd be like, well, the blessings are great, but gosh, like, this is just kind of weird to know that our God is a relational God. He doesn't go, look at what all I'm going to do in your life, but let's just keep this distance here because I don't really like being around you. Because if we think about us, let's just think about this for a moment. All the things that come into your head all day, every day, throughout your entire life, if someone else knew all those things, all the attitudes, the inward attitudes, all the grossness that comes at times, the way that you view somebody else, the thought that comes into your head about somebody, if somebody knew all of that, 
and, and, and was subjected constantly to hearing all of that and having all that yuckiness thrown on them, you'd be like, I don't really want to be around you that much. And yet God, he knows every thought. He knows everything that's ever come into our head. He knows every secret thing that we've ever done or will ever do. And he goes, I want you to know me. I want you to not just know me, I want you to experience me in your life. To see me clearly, as much as we can, this side of heaven. And that just unfolds something even greater to us about the kind of God that we have. What kind of father he is. You know, in some ways, this prayer of Paul sort of helps to clear up and change how we know and see our God. Because you and I, we can bring our biases to the table about God. Preconceived notions, the stuff that we've heard, the stuff that someone else said, uh, whatever. We bring all of that to the table in our relationship with the Lord. That can actually, we, we see God and we can maybe know him in a certain way, but we're, we think of him in, maybe in a bad light even. To know that God is going, I, I want to change the way that you see me, the way that you think about me, not to some untrue thing, but that we would actually see him as he really is. That we would see him in truth that we would know him in truth. And you know what? It's not God that needs to change. Oftentimes what needs to change is, is our understanding, our thinking, our perspective about him. And it will change when we come to know him better. But let's consider what Paul is praying for here. He asked the Father, to give to believers the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, just to clear up any potential confusion uh, up front, Paul is not praying that God will give us some additional spirit besides the Holy Spirit who, who he's already given to us and already sealed us with. Nor is this spirit of wisdom and revelation some sort of spiritual gift a believer may or not may not experience in our Christian walk. What Paul's doing here is he's praying for, for wisdom and revelation in spiritual matters, specifically in our knowledge of our glorious Father. Wisdom, we could say, in the sense of receiving insight into the true nature of things regarding our God. And revelation in the sense of God communicating things about himself to us, revealing himself to our hearts and our minds in an even greater way so that we can know him in an even deeper and more intimate way. Check out what David Gutzik said about this. He wrote, Paul prayed that the Father would grant the Ephesians the spirit of wisdom and that he would give them revelation. But these are not so that they may see into the lives of others, have the ability to predict events or do what we commonly think of as prophet stuff. I like that. He wanted them to have the spirit of wisdom and revelation simply so that they would have a better knowledge of him, God. Our Christian life must be centered around this purpose to know God as he is in truth, as revealed by his word, and to correct our false, idolatrous ideas of who God is. It is important for us to have an accurate knowledge and understanding of who we are, yet it is far more important and beneficial for us to know and understand who God is. The spirit of wisdom and revelation really is a reference to the illuminating work of the Spirit of God in the life of a saint of God. 
let me show you, or, or not show you, because I'm not going to put it up on the screen, but uh, tell you uh, a few references that kind of make this more clear for us. When prophesy, prophesying about the coming of Messiah, Jesus, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 11 said that the spirit of the Lord would rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of God. The rad descriptions of the Holy Spirit and his work that would be upon the life of the Messiah. Jesus in John 16 said that the Holy Spirit would guide his disciples into all truth. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 made it clear that God reveals things to his people through his spirit. He says, the natural man can't understand the things of the Lord. That we can't know the things of God except through the spirit of God. And in that passage of scripture said that the spirit of God helps us to know the things that have been freely given to us by God. So Paul's request and prayer for God's saints was really that the Holy Spirit would do his work in us in bringing wisdom, insight, revelation, so that we can know our God in a greater way. And he follows that up in the first part of verse 18 by praying that the eyes of our understanding, that word understanding could also be translated heart, the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. And that word enlightened, that just means, you know, basically it just speaks of, of being illuminated like when a light shines upon something. You ever felt like something was just like, ah, oh, just I'm having a hard time grasping, seeing this about God. It seems a little dim in our perception. And the Holy Spirit has a way of sort of shining a light on certain things about our God that helps just kind of brighten those things that before weren't as clear for us. You know, light plays a big role in sight, right? When something is completely pitch dark, Julian was talking about being under a house and he's doing, uh, doing some electrical, electrical things and his flashlight was going out on him as he's underneath there. When, there's, when it's dark, like, and really, really dark, as mu- you could try as much as you want, you cannot see anything anything when there is complete absence of any light any outside light any inside light you can't see anything you need light in order to have sight you you have to and so when you think about what paul's praying for here he's going look in a sense not in a new agey sort of way like a third eye but like your heart sort of has the ability to see god But you need the Holy Spirit to shine the light inwardly on the truths of God, on the things of God, so that you can see him more clearly, more fully in all his glory. Because when you and I are not approaching God to know him, what often happens in that place for us? we see him in sort of a skewed way. We feel like there's some shadows kind of hanging around the periphery of, of God's nature and his character. And we're, we're kind of like, okay, I, I trust him, but there's certain things I don't really trust about. I don't know that I can fully surrender to him because I don't really, I don't know if he's going to be different or if his mind's going to change But when you grow in your knowledge of him, when you understand God never changes. Which, if we ever say that about somebody else, is usually in a negative light. They never change. (laughs) You just never change, do you? Like, that's usually not a good thing. We want to be changing in a positive way. When we think about God, 
that he never changes. His changelessness, if that's even a word, his changelessness actually helps us to trust him completely. James says, look, with God, the father of lights, with him there's no variation or shadow of turning. There's never this aspect of him where something's gonna change there, or, or there's sort of this hidden thing that we don't really know about him that one day everything's gonna be completely different. He's always the same. Everything that he said in his word about himself, every promise that he's made will never change. And how important it is for you and for me to know him, to press in to knowing him more, to ask God even in our lives and in the lives of others, God, that we would know you. Know you. Not just know things about you, but know you experientially. That our God wants us to experience him. And we need this enlightenment, so to speak, this enlightening, the shining of the light by the Spirit of God inwardly so that we can know our God more fully. I like what Bible commentator William McDonald said about this phrase, the eyes of our hearts being enlightened. He wrote, this figurative expression teaches us that proper understanding of divine realities is not dependent on our having keen intellects, but rather tender hearts. It is a matter of the affections as well as, as of the mind. God's revelations are given, God's, sorry, revelations are given to those who love him. This opens up wonderful possibilities, he says, for every believer because though we may not all have high IQs, we can all have loving hearts. Man, I just love that. And for me, that just makes me go, Lord, keep our hearts tender then. Or keep our hearts tender and loving towards you. But now with all of that sort of in mind, he's making this prayer. He's, he's praying that we would know God. Now we're going to see some specific areas that Paul prayed that we would know and understand and experience God even more in the following verses. The rest of verse 18, if I can find my place here, says that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, part of why Paul prayed that the Father would give the Ephesian believers, and again, all of us need the same thing, praying for the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God, the eyes of our hearts being enlightened, is so that we may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of his inheritance in the saints. We need the Lord to shine upon our understanding, our hearts, so that we may know. And this is actually a different word in the Greek than that knowledge of God he already referenced. That other word for knowledge speaks of that experiential sort of knowledge. This word knowledge actually speaks of a, a, a knowledge sort of cognitively. To be aware of or knowing the facts, we might even say. That we would know the hope of his calling. And I'm having a really long quote here to read. So get your quote reading hats on with me. Bible commentator John Stott explained this, and I, I really liked how he explained this, uh, hope of our calling. He says, the call of God takes us back to the very beginning of our Christian lives. The question now is, what did God call us for? His call was not a random or purposeless thing. He had some object in view when he called us. He called us to something and for something. 
It is the expectation which we enjoy as a result of the fact that God has called us. He said, what this is, the rest of the New Testament tells us. It is a rich and varied expectation for God has called us to belong to Jesus Christ and into the fellowship of Jesus Christ. He has called us to be saints or called us with a holy calling. Since he who has called us, us is holy himself and says to us, you shall be holy for I am holy. One of the characteristics of the holy or special people of God is liberation from the judgment of God's law. So we are not, uh, we are not to lapse into slavery again, for we were called to freedom. Another characteristic is harmonious fellowship across the barriers of race and class, for we, uh, for we were called in the one body to enjoy the peace of Christ. And must live a life that is worthy of the calling to which we have been called for bearing one another in love. He went on to say, at the same time, though we may enjoy peace within the Christian community, we are bound to experience opposition from the unbelieving world. Yes, we must not retaliate for to this, this unjust suffering and this patient endurance, you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Besides, we know that beyond the suffering lies the glory, for God has also called us into his own kingdom and glory, or to his eternal glory in Christ. This is what Paul calls the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, for the sake of which he presses on in the Christian race towards the goal. John Stott says, all this was in God's mind when he called us. He called us to Christ and holiness, to freedom and peace, to suffering and glory. More simply, it was a call to an altogether new life in which we know, love, obey, and serve Christ, enjoy fellowship with him and with each other, and look beyond our present suffering to the glory which will one day be revealed. This is the hope to which he has called you. Paul prays that our eyes may be opened to know it. Isn't that like those facts, if we were to look at them as facts, that we, we need to know these things. We need to know that there's hope attached to the calling of God upon our lives, that his calling upon our lives was not purposeless. It wasn't meaningless. It wasn't haphazard. That God has a plan, and his plan is one that is connected inseparably to hope, which our hope is attacked all the time. Because we just think about all the uncertainties of life, all the things of the future, all the things that could go wrong. What's going to go on tomorrow? What, what are the things that are going on in the Middle East right now? How are all these things going to God's desired, planned, uh, you know, prophesied end? That we would go, God, your hope, your calling is one of hope. Which for me just brings us back to what we looked at last week, that we're to be a people of hope, right? Paul says we hoped beforehand. We got to stay in that place. We got to know what our calling is in God to know that it is truly a calling of hope. But added to that, we also need the Lord to enlighten, to shine upon our understanding, to shine upon our hearts so that we may know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. We saw in our study last week that we've been given an inheritance by Jesus, right? Saw how the Holy Spirit is the guarantee, he's the pledge, he's the earnest money, so to speak. He's the engagement ring of our inheritance, but here, Paul moves from speaking into the inheritance we've been given by God to now speaking about how the saints are God's inheritance. And I don't know about you, but that is, if I was from Boston, I would say that is wicked awesome. I may not say that. I don't even know if people in Boston say wicked awesome. 
But to think that we are God's inheritance, we're the thing that God's going, look what I get. Look at this thing that I get to have. Look at how valuable this thing is to me. When you and I look at ourselves, I don't know about you, but me, at least, I look at myself and I'm like, I don't feel like much of a prize most of the time. I don't think God's getting like this real special thing. Look at this inheritance. I'm like, are you sure, God? Me? Us? But to God, we are. That we would know the fact of this. It reminded me of the parables that Jesus gave in Matthew 13. And we'll show you the passage here. We are going to finish sometime today. Jesus said this. He said again, he's speaking about the kingdom of heaven. He says again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. And when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. These parables of Jesus here are powerful, but also been powerfully misunderstood by many. Jesus is not saying in these parables that in us finding him, we're like the person who found the hidden treasure or the merchant who found the pearl of great value. And so we went, we sold all that we had, we gave everything in order to get him. That's not what this parable is actually speaking into. We are not the ones who paid the ultimate price in these parables in order to get the thing of great value. The hidden treasure in the field, the pearl of great value, is actually Jesus speaking about us. He's the man. He's the merchant in those parables who sold all that he had. He paid the ultimate price. He gave everything in order to get us. And this is what makes these parables so powerful, but also so sweet. Because even with all our sin, all of our rebellion, all our failures, all our struggles, all of our inability to live righteously, to perfectly meet the standard of God's law, as Jesus looked at the field of this world, he saw you and me, and he considered us to be so valuable, so precious, so desirable in his great love for us, that he left the comforts and glory of heaven. He became one of us, walked among us, served and loved and preached and healed and touched and delivered and then ultimately was tortured and died a horrifying death, taking our sin, taking our punishment, going in our place to the cross, paying our debt in full in order to make us his own, his inheritance. Because he loves and values us so highly. You know, this world's going, look at your great value. Look inwardly. Look at yourself and find this. And when we look inwardly, know yourself. And we're like, oh, gosh, I don't really like what I'm seeing about me. Because I'm a sinner and I have this sin nature. And there's so many things that I, I don't like. If I'm looking for some sort of value and I'm looking inwardly, and that's where my focus is to be, I'm not coming away with, like, look at how valuable I am in the sight of God. But as I know my God, as I know what my God has said about me, about you, then I can see me rightly. I can see you rightly. But it doesn't start with us knowing us better. It starts with knowing God better. And as we know him, as we experience him, Man, God does something in us. He does something in our perspective. He does something in our hope. He does something with, our, with the way we value things and value our own lives. And so we gain, even from this very opening portion of Paul's prayer, gosh, what a great prayer to pray. 
What a great desire to have. And man, God, I want to be praying this for me. And I want to be praying this for other people. Because God, I want to grow. As Paul, sorry, Peter said in 2 Peter 3.18, that we would grow in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We're going to learn more from Paul's prayer next week. I'm going to have the worship team come back up. The Ephesian believers had faith in the Lord Jesus. They had love for all the saints. They were staying rooted in Jesus and so were being fruitful for Jesus. And, you know, the Lord wants to, this to be true of us too. I don't know if you found this to be true. I know I have in my life. But the more that I know him, the more I trust him. If you want to see your trust in Jesus grow, know him more. Dig into his word. See what he said. See who he is. The more that you know him, the more that you'll find your faith, your trust in the Lord Jesus growing, (laughs) growing, deepening. And when you and I are really trusting Jesus, when we are depending on him, we're we're just, our, our lives are just given over to him in that sort of way. God will do something with our love for other people. If you're trying to love people without the first having your faith in Jesus established and, and growing and deepened, you're going to be frustrated. I'm going to be frustrated. And you know what? If we're trying to like work from this understanding of how to look at each other and how to look at ourselves, we're not going to value each other rightly if we don't know how God values us. How does God view that? How does God value that other person that you have a problem with? Or that has a problem with you? How do we love people when they're not very lovable? How do other people love us when we're not very lovable? That we we would be rooted in our faith in Jesus, fruitful in our love for others. It's clear from Paul's prayer that the Father wants us to really know, really understand, really experience him. And with that, wanting us to know and be confident about the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in us. And so, Lord God, we thank you for your word this morning. God, thank you that we're able to have our faith in you. Lord, thank you that you are able to give us your agape love for others. God, we want our faith in you to grow, to deepen. And Lord, from that place, have our love for others also. God, grow. Be what you desire it to be. Lord, not loving with our kind of often selfish, conditional love, but Lord, to love with your selfless and unconditional love. And God, would you help us to know you even more? Lord, by your spirit, God, cause us to really know and experience you. God, to be brought, Lord, into deeper places of fellowship with you. And that, Lord, we would know truly, God, that the calling that you have upon our lives is a calling of hope. And that, God, you valued us so highly. You see us as your inheritance. God, thank you. Lord, we love you. We we want to just grow, Lord. Have tender hearts, Lord, that your spirit would be able to do those things within us. But if you're here today and you've never just first opened your heart to Jesus Christ, you've never had your sins forgiven, had your debt paid. This morning, God wants that to change. He wants you to open your heart to him, to surrender your life to him. And if that's you this morning and you want to put your trust in Jesus, would you raise your hand where you're at so I can pray for you this morning? If that's anybody at all and you're going, that's me. 
Jesus, forgive me. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. Lord, you know, God, the state of each heart. Lord, you know those who even may be joining us online or someone who may be listening to this or watching this service later on, that God, that maybe in their own hearts they're going, man, I, I, I need Jesus. I need this God who is saying I can know him. That he's knowable and relational and he became man and gave his life for me so that I could live, I could be forgiven, I could have heaven. And in your own heart, you would just humble yourself before the Lord and just say, Jesus, I'm, I'm a sinner. Jesus, I repent of my sin today. I put my trust in you. I believe, Jesus, that you died on the cross for me. That, Jesus, you rose from the grave. And that, Jesus, you want to raise me to new life as well. Lord, do that with me today. Make me a new creation in Christ Jesus. Forgive me and cleanse me. Seal me with your spirit. Help me to live for you. Help me to know you more. I encourage you, if you've done that, if, if that prayer has come from just a heart that's surrendered to the Lord this morning, that the Bible says you will be saved. And God, as we respond now to your word and the songs of praise and the taking of the communion elements and receiving prayer, maybe if that's us in the corner of the room, that God, you would continue to move and have your way among us. Lord, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name.